This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, the coldest case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500 I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. Cuban dictator Fidel Castro died Friday night at the age of 90. But the task of assessing his legacy has barely begun. We'll be taking stock throughout the morning, beginning with a look back at Castro the Man from Martha Teichner in our Sunday Morning cover story. Fidel Castro. It seemed as if he loved nothing better than to poke us in the eye. La confirmación plena. Thanks to him, for more than half a century, Cuba, a tiny island, has been the tail wagging the dog where U.S. politics and policy are concerned. Ahead this Sunday morning, the death of Fidel Castro. The provocateur is gone, but for the United States, the legacy of his provocation remains. Then it's back to business as usual. Make that show business. A lady who rocks, Lady Gaga by name, will be talking to our Lee Cowan for the record. She's reinvented herself so many times it's hard to know what to expect from Lady Gaga. I wanna hold them like they do in Texas, please. And that's exactly the way she likes it. It seems like you're more lady now than Gaga, if that really? makes any sense. <laughs> you know what I mean? Today. <laughs> what about tomorrow? Lady Gaga's latest incarnation, ahead on Sunday morning. A one-man fringe movement has been making his mark in the decorative arts, so much so that it's caught the eye of Faith Saley. If I were to tell you that Ben Venom makes understated and easygoing art quilts, I'd be lying. Do you picture your quilts like wrapped around somebody? Yeah, so if, if hell were to freeze over, then maybe, you know, say who would need a quilt, then I could provide that. <laughs> quilts that rock. Later on Sunday morning. 
We've all kinds of questions and answers this morning for actor Casey Affleck. Tracy Smith does the honors. Part of you having trouble. Well, I can't be his guardian. You can't talk about the Oscars this year without mentioning Casey Affleck. But he doesn't want to hear it. I think making too big a deal out of it uh, is a mistake. Do you let yourself hear the Oscar buzz that's going on now? No, I don't. I never listen to my... <laughs> Uh, baseball was a, was a big part of my childhood. A conversation with the uh, other Affleck later I, I on I Sunday play, morning. Also... From Seth Doan, we have a postcard from Tokyo, from its train station to be precise. Josh Seftel shares a glimpse of the secret life of American Muslims. We'll also be saying our goodbyes to Florence Henderson of the Brady Bunch and more. Ahead, Fidel Castro, a look back. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Fidel Castro, dead at the age of 90. We imagine that many of those who've opposed the Cuban dictator all their lives barely allow themselves to believe the news is true. After all, he's been a dominating figure on the world scene for as long as most of us can remember. Our cover story is reported by Martha Teichner. This is the Sierra Maestra on Cuba's southern coast. These are the jungle fighters, the rebels of Sierra Maestra. At first, he charmed us. It's hard to believe now, more than 50 years after the fact. With Fidel Castro here, our former clerks, technicians, students, town people, and the simple campesinos. Up in the hills with his rebels, Fidel Castro looked and sounded like a freedom fighter, a romantic hero. There are thousands of men who would gladly join us. Not the boogeyman he became to so many. We gladly suffer cold and rain and the hardship of life in the mountain. This is only the beginning. The last battle will be fought in the capital. You can be sure. But there was no battle. On New Year's Day, 1959, Cuban dictator General Vulgencio Batista, the bloated, corrupt embodiment of Cuba's problems, fled the country. Fidel Castro was born in 1926, one of five children. His family was prosperous and owned this sugar plantation in eastern Cuba. Educated by the Jesuits, he became a lawyer. The poverty Castro saw around him, the inequality, turned him into a revolutionary. Fidel Castro, at the age of 32, you now have in your hands a great deal of power and a great deal of responsibility. A month after taking power, interviewed on CBS by Edward R. Murrow, Castro said exactly what Americans wanted to hear. Tell me, Fidel Castro, are you concerned at all about the communist influence in Cuba? Oh, I'm not worried because really there is no threat about communism here in Cuba. It's still not clear whether he changed or whether he lied. But when Castro began executing opponents, when Castro started nationalizing industries and appropriating U.S. property in Cuba, it didn't matter. The U.S. response? Sanctions. The economic embargo that exists to this day. Since the early 1960s, more than a million Cubans have left. Most of them landed in Miami with nothing but their lives and the fierce determination to bring Fidel Castro down one way or another. In April of 1961, an army of Cuban exiles, backed by the CIA, tried to slip into the Bay of Pigs and liberate the island. The invasion was a disastrous and embarrassing failure, with a jubilant Castro playing David to the U.S. Goliath a role he fine-tuned for the rest of his life, with help from the Soviet Union. This is the CBS News Extra. The following year, in 1962, 
U.S. spy planes spotted the Russians installing nuclear missiles in Cuba. Those are Russian-made, Russian-manned ballistic missiles. This was the Cold War in our own backyard. Suddenly, Cuba seemed very, very important. I have directed the armed forces to prepare for any eventualities. Castro did not blink. It appealed to him to play this role, that he would harbor these missiles that could threaten this, the great uh, imperial, uh, that he could do this. Jay Taylor represented U.S. interests in Cuba in the 1980s. The world teetered on the edge, teetered on the edge of a nuclear war. We're talking about the world, millions, millions dying. It shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States, requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. For a couple of terrifying weeks, President John F. Kennedy and Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev played chicken until Khrushchev backed down and the missiles were removed. But that wasn't the end of Soviet involvement in Cuba. The Russians pumped something like $5 billion a year into the Cuban economy, propping it up, while the United States kept tightening the screws, toughening its sanctions, with the expectation that one day Castro would fall. The CIA repeatedly plotted to kill him. But still, he hung on, jailing dissidents, neutralizing political rivals, speaking for hours on end before vast crowds bust in to hear him. Which brings us to 1980. The Mariel boatlift that year was a huge repudiation of Castro's claim that Cubans were happy and content. Told they were free to go, 125,000 did, risking their lives piling onto small boats and makeshift rafts for the 90-mile crossing to Florida. It did hurt his image. But in the end, the fact that uh, the United States then had to stop this flow, having said we would not turn our backs on them, suddenly we, we did, and we said, turn them back and stop the boats. That uh, Castro then, I think, felt that he had, he had emerged still, even from that, politically uh, the victor. Especially when it became clear that 10 to 15,000 of the refugees he sent our way were insane or criminals turned loose from prisons and asylums. If life in Cuba was bad then, it got worse when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. Suddenly, all that Soviet money was gone, along with the oil Cuba received in exchange for sugar. Cubans were literally starving. Anti-Castro interests in the United States thought surely the end was in sight. But in 1993, Fidel Castro, the crafty survivor, did something startling to prop up the Cuban economy. He legalized the U.S. dollar, which meant that if your relatives in Miami sent you money, you could afford to eat. Today, those payments bring in $3 billion a year. Castro also invited foreign investment. Suddenly, Cuba looked like one big construction site. You name the country, Canada, France, Spain, Mexico, the Netherlands, Israel, everybody but the United States was there building massive resort hotels and condos for the two million tourists who now visit Cuba every year. In 1998, when Fidel Castro welcomed Pope John Paul II and let the pictures do the talking, the world saw Cuba surviving in spite of the U.S. trade embargo. It was political theater on a grand scale, the kind Castro loved. Remember the custody showdown over Elian Gonzalez, the small boy rescued at sea after his mother drowned trying to escape Cuba with him? Castro won. The boy was returned to his father in Cuba. He milked it in every way to uh, make 
the Cuban community in Miami uh, look bad, and the Cuban community in Miami, frankly, uh, fell right into the trap. Marifele Perez-Estabile is a sociology professor at Florida International University. The revolution was simply claiming a son for his father. The revolution does have its supporters, who give Castro credit for raising the literacy rate in Cuba to nearly 100 percent and for providing free health care to all. Cuba turns out highly skilled doctors, respected throughout Latin America. In February 2008, after a long illness, Fidel Castro officially transferred Cuba's presidency to his younger brother, Raul. Today, the United States of America is changing its relationship with the people of Cuba. It was Raul who agreed in 2014 to a restoration of diplomatic relations with the United States. It was Raul who welcomed President Obama to Cuba in March of this year. Less than a month later, a frail, faded Fidel Castro appeared at a Communist Party Congress. Soon I will be 90 years old, he said, in what seemed like a farewell address, stating, everyone's turn comes but the ideas of Cuban communists will remain. He turned 90 on August 13th, the day of his last public appearance. But even in death, he remains a boogeyman to some. Castro will always be remembered as the Cuban Latin American revolutionary who stood up to the United States and won. One, in terms of his health, brought him down, not anything that the United States ever did. The man the United States tried so hard to topple tormented 11 American presidents and died on his own terms. Ahead, the cold facts. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac, November 27th, 1701, 315 years ago today, the birthday of the Swedish scientist Anders Celsius. Celsius is best known for the temperature scale that bears his name. Unlike his predecessor, Daniel Gabriel Fahrenheit, whose scale had water freezing at 32 degrees and boiling at 212, Anders Celsius separated boiling and freezing by exactly 100 degrees. However, for some reason, he marked the degrees on his original thermometer upside down, with zero as the boiling point and 100 as the freezing point. Go figure. The Celsius scale was soon flipped right side up with zero for freezing and 100 for boiling. And generations of American school kids have been figuring out how to convert Fahrenheit to Celsius and vice versa ever since. Today, the United States stands alone among the major industrial nations in still using Fahrenheit. And based on the apparent degree of resistance across the land to a switch to Celsius, it seems unlikely we'll be warming to the idea anytime soon. Ahead, quilts of heavy metal. There's the right way, the wrong way, and then there's the way that I just decided to do it, which is, yeah, my way. <laughs> so how will history judge Fidel Castro? Is there good to weigh against the bad? According to the CIA's latest fact book, Cuba's infant mortality rate is 4.5 per 1,000 births. That's lower than the 5.8 recorded here in the United States. Average life expectancy in Cuba is 78.7 years, just a tenth of a year shorter than here. Cuba has 6.72 doctors per 1,000 people, more than double the number per thousand in our country. Weighed against these pluses, 
are the negatives of decades of political oppression. Though there's no hard number, political executions by firing squad total just over 3,100, according to the nonprofit think tank Cuba Archive. Human Rights Watch reports 6,200 arbitrary detentions during the first eight months of last year. And there's that flood of Cuban refugees to the United States to consider. More than 1.1 million Cuban immigrants now live in the United States. That's roughly one-tenth of Cuba's population. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is definitely not your grandmother's quilt. It's the creation of a music-loving artist who works on what you might call the fringe of the quilting craft. Faith Saley gets right to the point. I like this machine because once it gets going, I liken it to a uh, like shooting machine gun. When it's at full throttle, it's like... Sit down with Ben Venom in his studio in San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury. There's the right way, the wrong way, and then there's the way that I just decided to do it, which is, yeah, my way. <laughs> and it doesn't take long to realize he isn't quite like other quilters. You know, I'll listen to music or try to watch movies, but ultimately the, the, the noise of the machine kind of drowns a lot out, so, because I'm, you know, my head's like right in it. So pretty much my world is literally like right around here. His world is filled with arresting images like these. His quilts sell for thousands of dollars, have been exhibited around the world, and have names like Aces High and Iron Fist. Iron Fist refers to a Motorhead song, the band Motorhead. And then I have these all-seeing eyes, kind of like the third eye keeping watch, and then the drops of blood. Of course. Yeah. Well, what's a quilt without drops of blood? Right. I mean, I bleed. I've run over my fingers a couple of times. It hurts. So your blood is actually in a quilt or two? On one of them. Yeah, one or two of them. Yeah, you can see it. That's kind of my signature there. Ben Venom's other signature? Using everything from donated women's jeans and leather jackets to old rock t-shirts in his quilts. This is Iron Maiden. And this is Toxic Holocaust. Here I have bandanas, goat skin. Can I touch it? Yeah, absolutely. Really goat skin? Goat skin, yeah. It looks like snake skin, but they said it, it, apparently it's goat skin. Okay. Uh, bleached denim right here, uh, yeah. t-shirts, uh, waterproof camouflage. Wait, where do these acid wash jeans come from? Some of them are donated, and sometimes I'll buy a, a big piece of, of denim and I'll do it myself. Just like, you know, I live in the Haight-Ashbury with, you know, the, the years of the tie-dye, but for me it's the, the years of the 80s acid wash. The self-taught artist, whose real last name is Baumgartner, grew up listening to punk rock and heavy metal. But his life was changed forever when he went to see an exhibition of quilts. I saw the, the G's Ben quilt show at the De Young Museum in 2006 here in San Francisco. And I was really blown away by their work, these quilts, but these women have made for over centuries. And they use a lot of recycled fabrics. That show inspired him to take a pair of scissors into his closet to make his very first, and still to this day, favorite quilt. That quilt has a t-shirt on it, the band Testament, and I wore this Testament t-shirt for probably close to 15 years. I mean, I wore it so much, it was so threadbare, you could see through it. And at that point, I was like, eh, it's not too metal to wear out in public now. So I cut it up and put it into that, that first quilt that I made. That, that piece is called Listen to Heavy Metal While You Sleep. Are there mistakes in your work? Oh, gosh, yeah. All over the place. I'm not going to point them out to you, but oh, totally. You know, sometimes I don't really know how to sew this particular fabric or how this should be folded or whatever, so I just kind of, you know, do it, make my own way. But the fact that it's handmade allows for those mistakes to kind of to come through. You know, Bob Ross, you know. We don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents. It's a little happy accident. 
kind of a metaphor for life, right? I, mean, I grew up watching Bob Ross on TV, you know, his big afro and the weird dark studio that he had and always playing with the brushes. A happy little tree. So yeah, that, that's my upbringing. There's some kind of whimsy. Do you put humor? Oh, absolutely. I totally fully understand that the, the level of absurdity that some of these pieces have because it is pretty absurd that I do these quilts that this strong aggressive imagery, but yet it's it, the end result is like a functional piece of fabric, right? That's a, that is a little a little absurd. When Ben Benham gives an art talk, it sounds like this. This band, Hazard's Cure, donated shirts for him to quilt with, so he in turn invited them to his art talk and sewed patches on the jackets of fans while the band played. This is how we do. In a nutshell, I would say my art is a collision. It's a collision of fine art crafting and what I call the fringes of society. And that refers to like motorcycle clubs, punk rock, heavy metal, the occult mysticism, folklore, paganism. I take all those and I collide them together into one piece. Much like the large hydron collider in Bern, Switzerland, where you're shooting particles at each other at near lightning speed, when you shoot opposites together, they hit, new energy is released, and like a chain reaction happens. And I want to live right there, right in that razor's edge, that fine line when that new energy is released. Living every day, like it is our last. Still to come. So you were working in eighth grade, you said you started? I know. But then you get home by, you know, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, and... Meet Ben's brother, Casey Affleck. Here we go! And later, Lady Gaga on life, fame, and music. Put your mask back on. Peligroso, mi nombre medio. Casey Affleck has made a name for himself in films such as Ocean's 13. And now he's one of this year's leading candidates for Hollywood's highest honor. This morning, he's sitting down with Tracy Smith for some questions and answers. That boat is too small for these seas. And this ship will be sunk by nightfall. For Casey Affleck, 2016 has been quite a ride. He started the year helping to save a sinking ship in the finest hours. Every fella here wants to live. The only way that happens is if we run her aground. But his latest film is the one keeping Oscar dreams afloat. Would you take my daddy? In Manchester by the Sea, Affleck is a tragic loner who inherits custody of his teenage nephew. Which uh, part are you having trouble with? Well, I can't be his guardian. Well. I mean, I can't. His character is an unsmiling wreck of a man, tormented by a cruel twist of fate that we won't spoil for you here. Off screen, and with a full beard for an upcoming role, he's a bit less somber. This was originally Matt Damon's role, and he couldn't do it? I wouldn't uh, say it was his role. But, uh, <laughs> Sorry, how would you phrase was, that? I think at one point, someone was going to make the error of letting him play it. No. As you might guess, Casey Affleck and Matt Damon are longtime friends. And yes, Casey is Ben's younger brother. But at 41, he's not exactly standing in anyone's shadow. He was an honest cop in a den of corruption in this year's crime thriller, Triple Nine. Hey man, let me tell you something. You got a problem with me, put it on the table. But don't pull me aside and question me like you know something I don't know. He's been in all three Ocean's Eleven films. Oh, God, I think I lost my car. Are you serious? Oh, Jesus, I'm so stupid. You are so, so stupid. Everybody looks out his own window. Everyone's got their reasons. And he held his own with Morgan Freeman in Gone Baby Gone as a private investigator in Affleck's real-life hometown, Boston. So how much of who you are is Boston, would you say? A lot here? of who I am. I mean, this is... Uh, it, it feels like my home still, and I come back here as much as possible. And His parents divorced when he was in grade school, and the Affleck boys would often come home to an empty house. And so Ben and I kind of took care of ourselves. 
Latchkey kids, the classic latchkey kids. Did you guys get into trouble? Yeah, probably. I'm not talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. He will say that baseball was his life as a little leaguer and as a kid selling hot dogs outside Boston's famed Fenway Park. So you were working in eighth grade, you said you started? I know. I was young. I don't know why my mother let me do that. It seems crazy. But then you get home by, you know, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock and into bed and I was a working man. A working man in eighth grade. Mm -hmm. Another childhood memory, spending time with his father at his job, a celebrated local joint called the Cantab Lounge. Your dad bartended at the Cantab? He did. That was like my favorite bar in college. What? Yeah. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding. Little Joe Cook in the Thrillers? Yeah. At the Cantab. Yeah. That's where it's at now. Did you used to listen yeah, to that? You can sing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're in the wrong career. <laughs> no, I'm not. Well, when he would go to work when we were very young, we would have to go and sit at one of the tables and just like endlessly drink ginger ales while he was working, uh, which was fun. That's a hell of a way to raise a kid. He started acting full-time out of high school and in 1995 landed his first movie role as a troublesome teen in To Die For with Nicole Kidman. Did you say something, Russell? Oh, Mr. Philanson, I didn't. Didn't. Joaquin Phoenix was the actor. It was another actor in it. He became my best friend and uh, we lived together for a while. He was also married to Joaquin's sister, Summer. They recently split after 10 years and two kids. Despite his early success in the movies, Affleck decided to go back to school and enrolled full-time at Columbia University. But after a couple of years, Hollywood lured him back. I'm sitting in a rocking chair chatting with none other than Jesse James. And he got his first real taste of the big time in 2007, opposite Brad Pitt in the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Do I have to say the the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford? You have to say the whole thing every time you say that movie. I know, it's a pain in the ass. That might explain why so few people went to see it. (laughs) No, it's not very flattering. What do you think happened there? Sometimes it just takes a minute for a movie to catch on. It's not, uh, it wasn't an easy sell. Maybe people heard that Brad Pitt died halfway through and this other guy, Casey Affleck, carried the movie for the rest of it. I don't know. I'm not sure exactly. Oh, you have some nerve. Still, it got him noticed. For best performance by an actor in a supporting role, the nominees are Casey Affleck in The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. Casey Affleck seemed to be on a roll until this. He directed 2010's I'm Still Here, a spoof documentary in which Joaquin Phoenix retires from acting and pursues a career as a rap artist. It was meant as a gag, but almost no one laughed. People didn't get the joke. People didn't get the joke. They didn't, and what's more is I think it sort of annoyed people because they thought we were trying to sort of pull the wool over their eyes. Not only did the film flop, but Affleck was named in two civil sexual harassment suits by women who worked on the film. He vehemently denied the charges, and both suits were settled out of court. Where are you going? After nearly 25 years as an actor, Affleck says he still wonders about his place in the business and the college degree he never finished. And so I called up Columbia University and I said, I was, I was sort of hoping that I, I, would, I would say, I've been spent two years there, maybe you guys could just give me a degree. And this is, tells you a lot about the mindset of an actor. Uh, and I, and um, I thought they'd say like, sure, here's an honorary degree. What is, you know, great work you've been doing out there. Uh, and I finally got a dean on the phone and I explained my situation. And he said like, listen, I, you've been gone for over five years, you're gonna have to reapply. And by the way, you owe us, you know, $15,000 for your tuition. And I just thought, so no, okay, no, no honorary degree then? Okay. I told you I was cutting them. Not that it matters to someone who soon may have another date at the Oscars. Oh, God, no. Oh, what do you think you're going to do? <sighs> Guess I'm going to take a shower. It seems Casey Affleck's time has come again. You know, I came across a New York Times headline from a few years ago mm-hmm. that said, Casey Affleck should be more famous. Ah, oh, a curse. 
Should you be? No, I don't think so. I, uh, I'm pretty happy with how things are right now. I feel like I get to do movies I like to do every now and again. Um, I make a living and I don't get bothered on the street. I like working, so I just try to find a balance and whoever wrote that headline and that article, give me their name after this and I'll reach out to them and explain things. <laughs> Ahead. A lot of women say to me, you know, I really hated you. The story of a lovely lady. It happened this past week. The loss of America's most beloved blended family mom. Actress Florence Henderson died Thursday night of heart failure in Los Angeles. Born the tenth of ten children in small town Indiana, Henderson studied drama in New York where she landed the lead role in the touring company of Oklahoma. Many a new day will dawn before I do. Other roles and a stint on the Today Show with Dave Garraway followed in due course. Here's the story of a lovely lady. But it was her debut on The Brady Bunch in 1969 that made her a huge star. It's like your father and I always say, find out what you do best and then do your best with it. For five seasons, Henderson played Carol Brady. Alex, the washing machine's gone crazy! Dispensing common sense, wisdom, humor, and love to her combined brood of six children. Elbow toward left field, and your right elbow in. Oh, hi, honey. Popular though Carol Brady was, her image of perfection did raise the hackles of some women, as Henderson recalled in an interview with our Sandra Hughes back in 2010. A lot of women say to me, you know, I really hated you because my kids wanted you to be their mother. And I said, but you like me now, don't you? Yes. Florence Henderson was 82. Coming up, tracking the station master. <laughs> Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Although the 2020 Tokyo Olympics are almost four years off, the station master at the main train station already seems to be running his own kind of marathon every day. Seth Doan has sent us a postcard from Japan. It's home to Japan's super sleek Shinkansen, or bullet train. And it's a stop for nearly 2 million passengers riding 3,700 trains every weekday. This is Tokyo Station. And at the center of this universe, clad in white, is the station master. Like his trains, Takashi Eto keeps a tight schedule. The round started 8.50. We raced around trying to keep up with him. It's vital for me to check on things with my own eyes, he said. Let's make it nice and tidy, he instructed this cleaner. On the platform, he told another worker, don't catch cold. You seem to really love your job. I do, Eto agreed, adding, well, after my wife, but I've been with trains longer. Does your wife ever get jealous? No, he said, we have a saying in Japan, it's good to have a husband who's healthy and absent. This station really is his second family. His employees call him Oyakata, Japanese for parent. At the start of his day, we found Eto doing calligraphy, painting the character N, which means connection, his favorite word. From cradle to grave, we encounter millions of people, he said. The few we share our workplace with are precious. And get this, he bows whenever he enters or exits the station. It mentally prepares you for customers, Eto told us, and shows them appreciation. We watched as he saluted trains, stopped for a quick picture, and monitored the cleaners who turn around these trains in seven minutes flat. And no, this video is not sped up. He has almost 500 employees. He says he considers them his kids, and one of the most important parts of each day is about to happen. Yes. <laughs> oh, happy birthday to you. 
Happy birthday. He serenades each and every employee on their birthday. It creates a connection, he said. Everyone's birthday is that person's most special day. The station itself, built in 1914, recently celebrated its 100th birthday. It's lucky to be standing. And in the 1980s, it came within a, a hair's breadth of being demolished. Asby Brown, an architecture professor and New Orleans native, has lived in Tokyo for 30 years. You would not think it's the same station. It's sort of schizophrenic. Brown showed us how one side of the newly renovated station is modern. The other is more traditional and faces Japan's imperial palace. It was really a symbol of the Japanese empire. It has this, this grandiose, classical, kind of uh, dignified appearance. The other side was really like the backside of the city. It was always a little dustier and just more business-like. You have the super modern on one side meeting the almost old-fashioned on the other. Definitely old-fashioned. Uh, and yet, when this building was built, this was the peak of modernism. Today, it boasts a labyrinth of shops, its own hotel and bar, even a signature Tokyo Station cocktail. And it's remarkably clean. Save for some wrappers Eto snatched up and a little dust he noticed behind a computer. We watched you go around and pick up the trash. At one point you went down, you picked up a piece of trash and you showed it to the people nearby. Why? I'm trying to set an example, he told us. Tokyo is the gateway to Japan. For the Olympics, we'll have visitors from 200 countries. We can't speak the same language, but we can show a spanking clean station. One more. All right. Sipping one of those Tokyo Station cocktails, we toasted to the whole idea of this place. And to connections. Making a connection. I went to Dallas and loved it. Next, to be a Muslim in America. One man's story. I moved to Dallas. More than three million Muslims live in America. And in recent days, we've been hearing about a disturbing rise in hate crimes against them. That's why a new documentary series, The Secret Life of Muslims, caught our attention. The series can be seen online at Vox and the USA Today Network. We asked award-winning filmmaker Joshua Seftel, an occasional contributor to Sunday Morning, to tell us more about it. When I was a skinny 11-year-old living in a small town, kids threw pennies at me because I was Jewish. And I'll never forget how that made me feel. It got me thinking about what it must be like to be Muslim in America right now. So I asked some people of that faith to tell me their stories. Here's one of them. Mark Stroman was in a shooting rampage to kill as many Muslims as possible. As a retaliation of 9-11 terrorist attacks, he killed Wakar Hassan, a man from Pakistan. He shot and killed a man from India, Vasudev Patel. And on September 21st, 2001, he shot me in the face. As a child, my impression about the USA was it's a great country, beautiful country. I remember watching a lot of Western movies for a few dollars more. The good, bad, and the ugly. It was a dream that one day I should visit the wild, wild west and see all those things. After graduating from a military school in Bangladesh, I went to Dallas and loved it. Worked pretty hard, and within like a month, I was working as a clerk in a gas station. It gave me an opportunity to get to know the people, to learn the culture. I moved to Dallas May 2001, three months before the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Ten days after 9-11, I was behind the counter. A customer walked in. He was holding a double-barrel shotgun, pointing at my face. I said, sir, here is all the money. Please do not shoot me. And then he mumbled a question. Where are you from? I was confused, and I said, excuse me? As soon as I said, excuse me, he pulled the trigger. I felt it first like a million bees stinging my face. And then I heard the explosion. Frantically, I placed both palms on my head, thinking I had to keep my brain from spilling out. I felt that my time was up. Images of my, my mother, uh, my father, my siblings, and my fiance 
uh, appeared one after another one. And I was begging God, do not take me today. Ten days after 9-11, Stroman went on a shooting spree. Mark Stroman, a white supremacist, wanted revenge and shot three clerks who he thought were Muslims. Here in America, everybody was saying, let's get them. Two of his victims died. Stroman was convicted of murder and sentenced to death. I went to Hajj in 2009 with my mother. During the pilgrimage, she was rubbing on my face, she was crying, and uh, I heard my mom telling God that whatever my son wants to do with this life, help him. In my faith, in Islam, it says that saving a life is like saving the entire mankind. Mark Stroman has committed a heinous crime, there's no doubt about that, but all the good things I was taught inspired me, go and do the right thing. Mark Stroman has been in this prison behind me for nearly 10 years. As he sits on death row, an unlikely champion is fighting to save his life. Buyan will be partially blind for the rest of his life because of his injuries. But he wasn't interested in eye-for-an-eye eye justice. I went to the U.S. Supreme Court asking for clemency for Mark Stroman. Went to the U.S. Federal Court, went to the U.S. State Court of Texas. For this man to forgive me, which I've done unforgivable for him to come forward the way he did. It speaks volume. It speaks volume for the human race. He wrote a long letter to me. He said that my stepfather taught me some lessons that I should have never learned. I have unlearned some of them, and I'm still unlearning some of them. I don't know who your parents were, but it is obvious they're wonderful people to lead you to act this way, to forgive someone who is unforgivable. On the day he was executed, he put my name on a list of people that he would like to talk. As soon as he came on the phone, I said, Mark, you should know that I never hated you. I forgave you. And he said, Reis, I love you, bro. He's the same person. Ten years back, his heart was filled with hate and ignorance. But when he came to know me, he saw me as a human being. He was able to tell me that he loved me and he called me brother. Today, I am the founder and president of a nonprofit called World Without Hate, educating people about the transformational power of mercy and forgiveness, based on a hope that we can build a better world, a world without violence, a world without victims, and a world without hate. Still to come, the ever-surprising Lady Gaga. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Jane Pauley. Carpool karaoke with the Late Late Show's James Corden is one face of Lady Gaga. Her introspective new hit album is another. This morning, she's talking to Lee Cowan for the record. I used to come here probably four times a week to uh, John's memorial. Four times a week? Yeah, I was so inspired. On a warm fall day in New York's Central Park, Lady Gaga came to pay her respects to John Lennon. It was an unannounced visit, and yet it became an event. Everything around Lady Gaga becomes an event. But by Gaga standards, it was all pretty tame. That is all you need. It seems like you're more lady now than Gaga, if that really? makes any sense. <laughs> you know what I mean? Today. <laughs> what about tomorrow? There was a time when the one thing you could count on from the theatrical pop diva was outrageousness. I wanna hold them like they do in Texas, please. After all, she put meat dress in the fashion dictionary. She wasn't style over substance, though. Her six Grammys are proof of that. It was just part of the package. Here we go! But her latest solo album, her fifth, called Joanne, is a toned-down diva. I can't wait to smoke. I think that 
when people see me with less makeup on and less uh, of what I was doing before. There's a sense you've evolved into something right. else. Right. Oh, it's less now. Or it's, but, you know, I don't, I don't know that you can put a label on growth. You know, I'm just me. I'm just growing up. I'm 30, you know. It's just what I want to do now. She debuted the songs in what she called her dive bar tour. While there is plenty of dance pop for her little monster fans, the album is not, as she puts it, one big party. There was a lot of crying, a lot of crying, a lot of pain, a lot of um, learning about myself. Take my hand, stage the title track, Joanne, written with producer Mark Ronson, is about her father's sister, Joanne Germanata who died of lupus at age 19, before Gaga was born. Gaga's middle name is Joanne, and it's also the name of her parents' Italian restaurant on New York's Upper West Side, where we met. Playing the music for my father for the first time was very powerful, and my grandma, too. How'd they react? It was interesting. My father was very, very emotional, and my, my grandmother was, too, but she held my hand and she said, I hope, my dear, that you won't be too maudlin while you're putting this music into the world. And what I th think she meant by maudlin, it's such an old word, is she didn't want me to have an obsession with the death of my aunt. And if you say something that you might even mean, she calls Joanne her most honest record yet. You've given me a million reasons, give me a million reasons. Including a song called Million Reasons about the heartache of relationships. Gaga's own engagement to actor Taylor Kinney ended this year, after five years together. I think women love very hard. We love men, we just love with everything we have. And sometimes I don't know that that love is met with um, the type of dignity that we wish it would be met with. You know, we're not trying to make you less of a man. We just want you to love us the, as deeply and as wholesomely and as fully as we love you. makes for a pretty introspective sound, one some critics thought might turn her fans off. Instead, Joanne has scored Gaga her fourth number one album. I think it is hard for them at times to, you know, change from album to album because I go through quite a transformation and that's just the way I am as an artist. You know, they have to kind of let go of the last era of music. When you were promoting your last album, you wore the world's first flying dress. <laughs> and this, I have to laugh. <laughs> and this time, uh, it's dive bars, is how you're sort of releasing it. Can't wait to get you There's just something so fantastic and wonderful and humbling about being in a dive bar where I started making music and being able to sing this music. up close and personal to the fans, looking them in the eye for the first time when they hear it. It reminds me that if this were all to go away tomorrow, all the big success, that I would still be very happy going from bar to bar, playing music for people. Would That's, you really? Yes. The reason that I'm here at all is because of my relationship with my family and their encouragement of me to be a musician and to work hard. So as long as I stay there, in that space, I can do anything. That's my truth. Staying in that space wasn't always easy. Her debut album, The Fame, was a huge hit. But Gaga had trouble washing off the persona she'd created, even for her own parents. I used to come home and I think my mom used to watch me have a real hard time washing it off, you know? I'd keep the wigs on and keep the makeup on and keep the outfits on. And I was always trying to, I never wanted to let my fans down. I always wanted them to see me in my art form. The only place Lady Gaga could be Stephanie Germanata was behind the closed doors of her own home. I'm very, acutely aware that once I cross that property line, I'm not free anymore. As soon as I go out into the world, 
I belong in a way to everyone else. It's legal to follow me. It's legal to stalk me at the beach. I can't call the police or ask them to leave. And I took a long, hard look at that property line and I said, well, you know, if I can't be free out there, I'm gonna be free in here. And that's what this album is? Getting to do whatever you want to do? Yes, sir. And not what people are expecting or imposing on you to do? Excuse me, I'm sorry. Is it emotional because you feel just that weight on you all the time? That fame is just... I miss, I miss people. <laughs> sorry. Here you go. I miss people. Just having normal conversations with people? Yeah, I miss people. I miss, you know, going anywhere and meeting a random person and saying hi and having a conversation about life. I love people. The one barrier fame didn't put up was between her and her family, especially her father, Joe. Making your dad happy is, is especially for an Italian Catholic girl, I'll tell you. <laughs> it feels really good. And I, I feel that today. You know, all the awards in the world, you can get into all the nightclubs, They'll send you the nicest clothes. Nothing better than walking into your dad's restaurant and seeing a smile on his face and knowing that your mom and dad and your sister are real proud of you and that you know you haven't lost touch with who you are. That for me is real success. In February, she'll take all she's learned from these smaller stages to the biggest stage of all, the Super Bowl halftime show, where she says it's all in play. Yeah, I always say you got to play a dive bar like you play an arena, and you play an arena like you play a dive bar. Have a good day, sir. And it turns out she knows how to play Central Park, too. Is this, oh, you married? Oh, oh. See, all you need is love, right? Thank you. All you need. You gonna get on the back? Yeah. As she left, she saw a man with a bike and hopped on. Only Lady Gaga would make an exit, side saddle in a pink dress and heels, and somehow make it seem normal. You gotta love New York. <laughs> what to make of Fidel Castro? And what can Cuba look forward to now that he's gone? Some thoughts from historian Douglas Brinkley. What a large shadow Fidel Castro has cast over our lives. If Castro were a cartoon character, he'd be like a cat with nine lives. Writer Norman Mailer once told me that American presidents had Castro envy because they had to relinquish power every four or eight years while Castro stayed enthroned decade after decade. Dictators have long been fashionable in Latin America, but somehow Castro was different than the tyrannical rest. With a wiry beard and a fierce gaze, always clad in olive drab military fatigues, he exuded a strange messianic bearing. Although Cuba is an island nation of only 11 million, Castro's global stature never wavered. Everyone, even his enemies, wanted to meet the legend. The Colombian Nobel Peace Prize winning novelist Gabriel Garcia Marquez, author of 100 Years of Solitude, once swooned that Castro was born to win. Even Nelson Mandela once proudly shouted, long live the Cuban revolution, long live comrade Fidel Castro. To the US government, however, Castro was always a pariah. That is until recently, due largely to President Obama's willingness to improve US-Cuban relations, a new detente between our nations has emerged. Flight between Miami and Havana is now relatively simple. A number of my students at Rice University in Houston, Texas, for example, are this very Thanksgiving weekend in Havana as part of a college baseball diplomacy gambit. But I think normalization of relations between the United States and Cuba will only go so far. Castorism will continue to be upheld in Cuba by Fidel's brother Raul, now 85 years old.
While Castro's nine lives have ended, my guess is that his shadow will still loom large. In death, Fidel, like Pancho Villa and Che Guevara, will remain a folk figure throughout much of the world. His tomb will be the central tourist attraction in Havana, no matter how many Hilton and Marriott resorts are built on the outskirts of town. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning. Oh, hi. Snuggle up. Bedtime's about to be a dream. It's good night. Bedtime stories. A perfect way to end the day. Good night. Introducing Nickelodeon's Good Night Bedtime Stories. It's the only podcast where the best part <sighs> is missing the ending. It's bedtime the Nickelodeon way. Listen to Nickelodeon's Good Night Bedtime Stories wherever you get your podcasts.